0: Recovery Elevator, episode 199.
1: You know, I I vividly remember having a week of sobriety, and in my head I would think, you know what, I don't think I've hit rock bottom yet. So I would use that as an excuse to go out and get loaded again.
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Asaf. He's 37 years old. He's from Windsor, Ontario, and he's been sober for six weeks and four days. Guys, I am excited to announce on January 1st, 2019, we'll be launching our third private confidential Facebook recovery group, Re. The name is yet to be determined. But if you'd like to get this year started off right, all signups starting January 1st through the entire month of January are going to put into this new exclusive group. All groups have access to the forum, but we keep the Facebook group small to ensure intimacy. Guys I'll be honest, for some people when they sign up for Cafe RE, they might cancel the next day. For others though, this is a transformational recovery tool. Some people have gone to every single meetup we've put on. They've flown across the country to meet their accountability partner. They're hitting six months, a year, two years of sobriety. These small, intimate, private recovery groups are awesome. I also want to be clear upfront and say that Cafe RE is not a 30-day alcohol-free challenge. Cafe RE is for people who have reached the conclusion that they'd like to move forward in life without alcohol. Again, this new group is opening up January 1st. If you sign up beforehand, you'll be added to either Cafe RE or Cafe RE Blue, but all new registrations from January 1st to January 31st, 2019, go to this new group. It's going to be awesome. And before we get started, there's a podcast all of you guys need to listen to, uh, Russell Brand as a podcast where he interviews Dr. Gabber Mate. I think it's Under the Skin. I think that's the name of his podcast but Dr. Gaber is just an addiction guru. He nails it on so many fronts. I had several people send me this podcast, go out and listen to it, I love that guy. Both of them are doing great work in recovery. Okay, let's get started. In this episode, I'll cover why gratitude is a recurring topic, what gratitude is, one big thing that we always need to be thankful for, how to cultivate this mindset of appreciation, We'll cover some strategies on how to be grateful. We'll cover why gratitude is good for our brains. And after the interview with Asaf, I'll paint a really cool picture for you. Basically like the ultimate gratitude scenario, which I'm excited to talk to you guys about. So stay tuned. This is going to be a great episode. Okay, gratitude. This at first glance is an easy concept or topic to cover, right? Well, that's what I thought, especially when I first began my journey into sobriety. I thought I had it figured out. Be thankful of things in life, especially the small things. Okay, got it. Attitude of gratitude? Consider this tool sharpened and inserted into my recovery tool belt. As Jay-Z would say, on to the next one. But this is a topic in recovery that continuously needs to be covered, which is difficult for a guy like me. I'm a checklist guy. I like to check boxes and move on. But this is a box in recovery that will never be checked because it's ongoing, which is a good thing. And when you get to a good spot with this mindset, you don't want this checklist to be checked because it equates to joy. Before we proceed any further, let's discuss the definition of gratitude. According to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, gratitude is a state of being grateful. And I'm going to take this one step further and say, if you're in this state, you're experiencing joy. I would say happy, but happiness has the inverse, which is sad. Joy is joy. So moving forward, if I use the word joy, I've simply swapped it out as a synonym for gratitude. Okay, here's one big thing we always need to be thankful for. That's us on planet Earth. Human beings. About 65 million years ago, an asteroid the size of Texas, kidding, not that big, but one about 10 miles wide hit a bull's eye on planet Earth. When I say bullseye, that's exactly what I mean. Of all the places on Earth where an asteroid of this magnitude could have hit, the Yucatan Peninsula would have been the worst because most of it is basically an oily tinderbox. So where did this asteroid hit? You nailed it. The Yucatan Peninsula. Had the asteroid come even 15 seconds later, had the Earth rotated for just 15 more seconds, the asteroid would have landed in the ocean and made just a splash. Okay. It would have made it a lot more than a splash, but it wouldn't have caused the extinction of the dinosaurs and three quarters of life on planet earth. What I'm getting at is this, if dinos walk the planet, humans don't exist. Thinking of this cataclysmic event alone should be enough to summon at least a little appreciation for this moment we're having right now. How do we create a mindset of appreciation? Well, this isn't easy and takes effort in the beginning. In fact, I had a sponsor in 2013 that wanted me to write down five things a day in a notebook that I was thankful for. said to myself, five things? That's it? No problem. This task was much harder than I had anticipated. At first, this takes work. and At that time in my life, even though there was still so much to be thankful for, I had difficulty seeing it. So let's try a couple things to prime the gratitude muscles. Let's start with an exercise. Take your left elbow. Think about it right now. Gosh, I know somebody out there just had left elbow surgery, so I apologize. Go to the elbow that works. Pick your left elbow up. Bend it 90 degrees. Go straight and back. Pick something up with that left elbow. This is something that we take for granted, just any joint in our body. And just say to yourself, I'm glad my left elbow is working perfect right now. Okay. Here's another exercise. Think about a friend. Don't think too long. The first person that comes to mind will work. Close your eyes and just say thank you to them. That's it. That wasn't that hard, now was it? Here's another thing we can do. I want you to reach out to somebody every single day. Random people included. This can be a text. This is something that I try to do every day. And it doesn't have to be in the phrase of I'm thankful for, for example, I texted a buddy the other day and I said, Hey, I want you to know that I think you're doing such a great job in life with everything you're doing. That's it. Nothing. Hadn't talked to that guy in like six months. It felt really good to send the text. Another thing you can do is create a gratitude accountability email group. Get like four to five people in an email list and just say, Hey, I want to set up something where we email each other randomly about things that we're thankful for. Another strategy is to have a small notebook on your kitchen table that you enter one to ten items that you're thankful for each day. Another way to do this is to take a breath right now and just say thank you. Another way to cultivate gratitude into your life daily is ditch sources of ungratefulness. Perhaps stop watching the news or a lot less of it. Throttle the intake of social media. Spend less time with a guy who always says, man, the weather sucks right now, and spend more time with the person who says, wow, today is a beautiful day. It turns out that gratitude is good for our brains. For those of us who did not pay attention in biology class, the hypothalamus is the part of our brain that regulates a number of our bodily functions, including our appetites, sleep, temperature, metabolism, and growth. A 2009 National Institute of Health study showed that our hypothalamus is activated when we feel gratitude or display acts of kindness. This research on gratitude means that although it might be hard to believe, that we literally can't function without grace. This is a powerful thought. We are wired to be a grateful species. It's time we embrace this. But gratitude is also addictive, another one of those benefits of gratitude that research has discovered. Turns out that acts of kindness and feelings of gratitude flood our brains with a chemical called dopamine. When we are truly grateful for something or someone, our brains reward us by giving us a natural high. Because this feeling is so good, we are motivated to feel it again and become more inclined to give thanks and also to do good for others. When it comes to creating this mindset, which it is, we want to focus on the action and forget about the results. At first, for most of us, this is going to feel like a lot of work. But within time, we are aiming to cultivate a mindset where appreciation becomes second nature with everything, especially the small things. Sure, it's easy to be appreciative of life when you watch your nephew graduate high school. But is it possible to feel joy when you get a flat tire? When the New England Patriots crush your dolphins every single time? If we truly achieve this state of gratitude, then we are thankful regardless of what life puts in front of us. In fact, this must be the case, or else gratitude would be conditional. You might be saying to yourself, Do I have to apply this gratitude, be appreciative of my journey up into this moment? Do I have to be thankful for that? I'm sure many of us would perhaps rather be listening to the Home and Gardening podcast, or the DIY Home Improvement podcast, yet here we are listening to a podcast which is basically in the how to unfuck yourself category on iTunes, on how to quit drinking and live in a world that seems to be completely intertwined with alcohol. Do I have to be thankful for that? Absolutely. In fact, this is the part of our lives where we need to be the most thankful. There have been times, and they are occurring more and more, the longer I stay away from the shit called alcohol, that I have been hit with a wave of joy for everything that has happened in my past, more specifically my addiction. The DUI, driving to work, the panic attacks, plural, being addicted to alcohol, physically, mentally, and spiritually, the whole phase where I was drinking to alleviate the depression, yet the depression worsened with every sip, the failed suicide attempt, all of it, because it brought me to this moment right here. It brought me to Recovery Elevator. I love doing this podcast. I just went to Peru with 19 other awesome individuals, and we had an absolute blast, But even apart from Recovery Elevator, my journey has brought me to an incredible place. It's given me an amazing life. Of course, I'm thankful for this journey, but what I missed along the way is that I needed to be and could have been thankful for the journey, even during the muckiest of times. I'm pretty sure I just made that word up. It is possible and even necessary to be appreciative of the bad times as well. Gratitude isn't a modern-day swipe right or swipe left app where we get to pick and choose what to be thankful for, we have to find joy in everything. I'm going to repeat myself, everything, the good, the bad, and the, uh, I forget the third one is the good, the bad, and the, uh, unpleasant. Yep. That's it. Nailed it. And once again, after we hear from Asaph, I'm going to do my best to paint a picture of gratitude for all of us. Okay. Enough out of me. Let's hear from ASAF. ASAF, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Paul. Yeah, great to have you on the podcast today, Asaf. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober?
1: Uh, this time around, I have been sober for six weeks and four days.
0: This time around, you, me, and about ninety-eight percent of other interviewees—that's <laughs> the common theme here. I love it. We all get another chance unless we push it just a little bit too far, which is the only line we can't come back from. So before we get any further, Asaf, give listeners a little background about yourself. Maybe where you're from. What you do for a living? Your age? Do you have a family? And most importantly, what do you like to do for fun?
1: Sure thing, Paul. Thanks. Yeah, I'm really excited to actually be part of the, you know the podcast that I listened to for so long. So I just want to give you a little bit about me, like you asked. I grew up all over the world. Actually, I was born into a cult called the Children of God, and so pretty much that uh, entailed a lot of traveling. So I was born in Canada, but six years of my childhood were in Mexico, and then. I was in uh, various parts of the US and Canada and then when I was 17 I went to India and I spent 10 years there where I had five children and then my now ex-wife and I moved to Toronto where we were for seven years and during that time our marriage uh, didn't work out and that's when I became a full-time alcoholic
0: <laughs> gotcha and before I hit record you mentioned you're 37 years old that's right, yes. Gotcha. And what do you like to do for fun? And tell us a little about your uh, profession. What do you do?
1: Well, I work a few days at a restaurant. I do uh, serving uh, as few days as possible because the, the time, when I first got into recovery, which was two years ago, when I started making a serious attempt, I decided to pursue my art as a, as a professional career. And so all my free time, I pretty much spend doing that.
0: And listeners, I saw a painting that, uh, that Asaf did online, and I reached out to ASAP and said, hey, I want an RE painting. And we just chatted a little bit about that before I hit record. So I'm excited. Once I get that, I'm going to share that on Instagram, Facebook, et cetera. I'm excited to show you guys what Asaf can create. Yeah, before we get into your background about your drinking, just just comment real quick on, on the serving position. I, I, I actually really enjoyed working in restaurants as a server. Um, I did it both while drinking and in sobriety. Is it tough to do that? Um, you know, you've got six weeks and four days of sobriety. Is it tough to do that and maintain your sobriety? You
1: know, that's a question that I grappled with a lot. In fact, I did quit my uh, jobs at restaurants when I was early, early in sobriety. You know, I found that if um, I really wanted to stay sober, that I was able to find the tools and to do it, whether or not I was serving at a restaurant and around alcohol. And, but if I really wasn't putting the work in or figuring out why I drank, then I couldn't stay sober even if I wasn't working in the bar, you know. So I don't think that working at a restaurant or near alcohol or going to, like, big parties in, like, early sobriety is a good idea. But as time goes on, it really doesn't make uh, a huge difference. Because I found, like, if I'm going to go out and get drunk, like, I'm going to do it whether I work at a bar or not, you know.
0: Hey, Saf, I love that answer. And before we get to your background, I want to share a quick anecdote Um, I worked at a fine dining Italian restaurant in Beaver Creek, Colorado. I think it was about 2008, and once I start drinking, and I'm sure it's the same with you and a lot of listeners, once you wet the whistle, it's like impossible to stop. And we did a a fine wine tasting before our shift started at like 3.30 in the afternoon. And right, you know, about an hour to my shift, I realized like, look, I'm sobered up and this is, this is not fun. I walked over to the wine rack, pulled a wine bottle off, did the display, like the nice napkin on your forearm, Walked through the entire restaurant with this nice, probably $50 bottle of wine, walked in the back room, opened the bottle, emptied it all into like a 30 ounce plastic cup, chugged the entire bottle of wine, walked right back into the restaurant. You might be an alcoholic if I sobered up. Um, probably four years later, Jesus Christ <laughs> But ASAP, uh, <laughs> give us a little background about your drinking. Tell us about your drinking habits. When you started? When when you first realized that man, this is an issue. And yeah, I'm excited to hear more about it.
1: Well, thanks, Paul. You know, I it really crept up on me. And and first of all, I'd I like to say that you know, I really I really did believe that I was somehow special. You know, like when When negative things uh started happening in my drinking i I blew them off right I pretty much minimized them you know my my relationship with alcohol was compressed into a shorter time frame because you know my upbringing uh in this cult there was uh, very little drinking allowed, so I had never been drunk until I was about probably gosh I must have been thirty one years old uh, I had only been drunk one time but at that time, my marriage fell apart, and I pretty much hit the bottle really hard uh, and in hindsight i 'm grateful that I got my uh, i hit, the, i went i went to my bottom i guess quickly so that I could uh then get into recovery or uh or i 'd probably still be still be drinking today
0: mm-hmm.
1: but yeah I think i I got lost on uh on a tangent there but uh Remember what I was answering, actually.
0: No, you're good. You're good. So, if I heard you correctly in the intro, you said you have five kids with with your now ex wife yeah. when you lived in India. Is that correct? Yeah, that's and, right. Yeah. And all this time you were you were you were in a in a cult or, or in in a social structure where drinking was was just not okay, right? Correct. yeah. And so the first time you said you got drunk was at age 31.
1: Yeah. I okay. Think so around there. I don't remember exactly, but it was after that uh, my ex wife and I left the cult and uh which was when i was 28 and we were raising our kids full-time like we we were hustling right and uh i don't think i barely drank because i was working full-time right but slowly it, it just it crept in uh drinks after work and and then when the marriage hit the rocks i think that that's when i got a, a case of the fuckus, and yeah, i just yeah. didn't really care anymore and i just kind of let it all go
0: so what was it like when the, you mentioned the first time you got drunk around age 31? What was that experience like?
1: You know, unlike, uh, i I've heard a lot of people describing that first time being, you know, uh, like something incredible. I don't really remember my first time, to be honest. But I remember the overall sense of alcohol being like a guide that was like taking me out of like a past where I was, you know, controlled by people or perceived that i was and it just gave me this freedom to like be myself you know and that was the general the the general kind of feeling that i have on my early drinking days right like i could socialize i didn't i was no longer awkward i could talk to girls and um, just be myself until uh well until it wasn't me anymore right? <laughs>
0: Well, I think what you just described is the magic that we get from our first couple drinks, first years in our drinking is the magic or or the ability, the freedom to be ourselves. And just that feeling is addictive. And walk us through from ages 31, and you said you're 37 right now. When did it become a problem? Did it ramp up? Did you ever try to moderate, put any rules to place? And were there some you know, major red flags that showed up?
1: I did that. Uh, all those things. I moderate. I tried to moderate, uh, and I and I did moderate uh, at times, right? With with less or more efficiency or effectiveness, depending on uh, the time. But the, the the gradual the trend was on the decline, you know. As I've so I had had no exposure to recovery at all until I went to rehab, you know, zero. So. All the things that I tried to do, I later found by listening to your podcast and by, you know, books and hearing other people's stories that all those things that I did have been done by everyone. The moderating and the uh switching of, uh, you know, from beer to vodka, vodka to beer, whatever it is that I did. I did all those switches, drinking on the weekends, no drinking before 5 p.m. I did every single one of those. But, you know, the the booze, the inertia from the booze was more powerful than all of those things, I didn't have a big enough reason to really quit, so I never did. I just wanted to bring it under control, and the negative repercussions started adding up. I got a DUI, or it's called something else in Canada, but it's the same thing. Uh, I got two in the space of a week and lost my license and gone into a big fight and got a black eye, and you know, my finances were pretty much completely unraveling. I mean, at this point, I realized I had a problem with alcohol, but I wasn't really ready to stop drinking. I was just ready to control it. Air quotes.
0: Yeah. ASAP. let's expand on just that week right there. And and at the finalization of that week, you said you weren't ready to stop. You just wanted to keep controlling it. So you got two DUIs to call it something else in Canada Mm -hmm. in one week. You also got in a fight resulting in a black eye. And at the culmination of that week, you said, A, well, I need to quit drinking or B, I think we need to moderate more. I'm not ready to quit. You went with B. Talk to us more about that decision, because the outside looking in, two DUIs, a fight, and a black eye—the gig is up. But with you and I was right there with you. um, I continued drinking after my DUI, even with a broken. I continued drinking and driving after my DUI, even with a broken taillight. But talk to us more about that thinking process, or yeah, just what what that was like for you.
1: It was just a very very confusing time, you know, Paul. Like I think that. There were many times when I drank to the point where something uh, terrible had happened or I didn't know what had happened. I was in blackout and I swore I would never drink again. But, you know, that that's um, not the same thing really to me, you know, because I would always go back on on my word always, you know. And I think that the coping mechanism that alcohol gave me, I just didn't have any other tools in my toolkit as you so wonderfully call it i started i started using that term with everyone you know i just didn't have tools you know i didn't have coping mechanisms i never learned how to socialize or how to you know go and have fun without drinking and uh, dozens of other uh, things that i didn't know how to relax at night on my own right i was i was so dependent on alcohol that i couldn't imagine a life without it
0: Saf, you did a perfect job of summarizing the cognitive dissonance of why it's so difficult to make that clear decision, it's confusing. And that's exactly what you said, it was a confusing time. And listeners, if you're listening out there and saying, you know what, like I'm in that spot right now, I've had this red flag, this bottom, and I don't know what to do, don't beat yourself up. Because it's a very confusing time in a journey. And I had that same three month gap where the signs were so clear, but I just, I couldn't see it at the time. So I love the way you described it. So apparently the two DUIs, the one black eye that wasn't your rock bottom moment, Take us forward to when you finally decided to to quit drinking. Um, was there a rock bottom moment?
1: You know, Paul, I had so many rock bottom moments, but later on, it was actually at rehab that I slowly had this realization that really, there's no, there there isn't going to be a rock bottom until I decide that that particular thing. That's my rock bottom. You know, I I, I vividly remember having a week of sobriety, and in my head, I would think. You know what? I don't think I've hit rock bottom yet. So I would use that as an excuse to go out and get loaded again. You know, and then of course I would hit maybe another rock bottom, maybe not that night, but uh, next week. And then I would sober up, and I would be like, yeah, but was that really my rock bottom? And, and what I realized is that rock bottom is when is it's the point when I decide, you know, that that's enough is enough. Because I currently don't believe that there is a rock bottom until we hit, as you said, the the final one death. you know we keep uh like for me i kept digging and then getting comfortable with the depth i was at and then i'd pick the shovel up as as they say in the rooms and keep digging again so mm-hmm. i think it was more of a decision of enough is enough and i'm gonna just stop digging i'm gonna stop trying to find out if there's a new rock bottom here
0: asaf i love how you describe that because when I first started the journey, I thought rock bottom it looked like a painting on the wall or, or, or looked like flashing lights. It looked like bankruptcy. It looked like divorce. It looked like all that stuff. But what you're just saying is rock bottom is what you make out of it. <laughs> it's what you make of it. And your rock bottom can be anything. Your rock bottom can be a, a tummy ache and a headache, right? You can just say, look, I'm done. I'm ready to move forward. So I love how you describe that rock bottom moment. It doesn't have to look like we how we see it on TV, how we see it in the movies and things like that. You can just stop digging at any time and go ahead and take the stairs back up. See what I did there? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So how did you? Like, yeah, good one, Paul. <laughs> so how did you do it? How did you quit drinking? So
1: you know, I I can't take as much credit as I as my ego would like me to. Uh, you know, my my sister uh, had gone through recovery and uh she pretty much she tricked me into into getting into recovery. You know? She actually you know called me up where I was and she said, Listen, like you need to kind of uh, pull yourself together. But she didn't say, Hey, you need to go to rehab, you know, that uh I wouldn't have listened to that and I think she knew that. And, you know, she told she presented it more as a place to take a little break and you know, yeah, sure, some people go there who are alcoholics, but, you know, other people go there, too, who, like, just, you know, need time to think and whatever, whatever, right? So she painted a picture for me, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to do it. So I went in. It was a three-month uh, residency program, live-in. Mm-hmm. And I signed up for it, and I think that through that process of going through that uh, and the time that followed it, you know, was, like, a slow and very gradual awakening to the fact that, this thing alcohol has you know it was it was wonderful in the beginning you know and then as as they say in the rooms it was it was wonderful but still now it had its problems and then it was just problems you know there was a slow awakening to realize that I had come to that stage that it's it's just problems now and like it's time to kind of grow up and learn how to deal with my problems uh without this crutch you know and my as I've told uh, you guys, I have just over six weeks right now, you know, but I've been in recovery for two years. I've had a lot of relapses, you know, like I would get two weeks and I would get a month and, you know, some people will say that, well, that time doesn't count. But, you know, for me, like I was making my best effort to have recovery. And so I consider myself to have been in recovery for two years because that's when I made a decision that, you know what, like I want to like leave this thing in my past. And sure, it's kind of it's haunted me, and it's, uh, I've had my number, my fair share of relapses. But uh, each time I get up and I keep going because, like, in my head, I can still learn from that. Like, I'm still in recovery.
0: Asaph, first off, i got to say, damn, your sister is good. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> and number two, in, in the last two years, what percentage of time would you say you've been sober? Not continuous time, but percentage of time total in the last two years.
1: Most of it, Paul. Uh, I would say nine percent, even even more. Honestly, right? Like probably ninety-five percent. Like what I would do is is, is, a, is a, I would I would do well for six weeks. I'd be going to my meetings or, or or whatever the things that I needed to do, and then I would pat myself on the back and I would congratulate myself and I would, you know, it, it wasn't a conscious thing. But like subconsciously, I think I was thinking I'm really better than these people because like when I decide to do recovery, I crush it. Like I hit every meeting, like <laughs> I get a sponsor, I have sponsees, like I'll, I'll do like, I'll be so active, I'll make 100 paintings and like I'll, you know, make a bunch of money and like I'm I am a of accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, I'm different, I'm special. And so I give myself permission to like, I can have a couple drinks, you know, so I do that and I end up having a mountain of drinks. And and it's usually a one-night thing, right? And then I wake up the next day and I have to kind of re, recalculate and remind myself that uh, it was a fuck-up, you know, and uh, then I reset my clock. But, yeah, I don't go out for – it's not like I change my mind for chunks of time. It's like I forget why I'm doing what I'm doing and I, I don't even like the word relapse. I don't know if it really helps me much. You know, it's like each time I've learned one of the uh, pitfalls or tricks that my mind will tell me. And, and one of them is that, is, yeah, is that I'm better than other people or like, this is between you and uh, nobody, like, it's nobody's business but your own. So, um, I don't know.
0: Asaf, I like we said about the word relapse. I personally like to use the word whoopsie daisy. <laughs> uh, yeah, broken up with the word alcoholic. I think we need to start using a different vernacular, a different set of terms and terminology when describing alcoholism. You know, the EDR enhanced dopamine receptors, alcohol use disorder, et cetera. Now you said ninety percent in the past two years. Uh, I don't know who's counting, man, but that that's fantastic. And you, you mentioned in some rooms, twelve step rooms. The only time you got right now is six weeks, four days. I don't prescribe to that so much. Is, is is We're looking at the whole thing. We're going for quality over quantity first off. And 90% over two years, that's a huge success. And, you know, I made the mistake of throwing away two and a half years of sobriety when I relapsed and had a bunch of whoopsie daisies in there as well. But you and me both, like, we got to look at the bulk of our recovery work and say, damn, Asaf, damn, Paul, nice job. We're both in, like, the 90% range. Um, and currently, you know, I'm on a, I'm on a great stretch right now, but I can't discount and you can't discount and listeners can't discount all that time before that they've had sober and then had a whoopsie daisy. Cause it's all part of the journey. And like you just said, you learned some valuable lessons through the way, you know, what, what are some of the lessons that you learned after a relapse after a whoopsie daisy that you've applied to this run at sobriety?
1: Well, you know, the, the really first thing that actually comes to mind is, you know, I think it made a huge difference. Although I can't, I can't really pin, I can't be a hundred percent sure, but I'm almost sure. So I'm going with it. And that was that I picked one person to be a hundred percent honest with about me, like one hundred percent vulnerable because I realized at some point that they, there was, it was always this talk about honesty. And, And in my head, you know, in, in like in books about recovery or in meetings or whatever it was. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, but I don't really need to be completely honest with anybody. Like, this is my private affairs inside of my head. But I found that if I did that, then I was kind of locked inside the cage of my head a little bit, you know, and that it felt stifling and frustrating. And but eventually I picked one person to be completely vulnerable with. And I found that that was uh, Mm a real key for me personally.
0: Yeah, ASAP. and at this time in the interview, we're going to insert the word accountability. (laughs) I agree 100%. So was this person that you burned the ships with, that you were 100% accountable and honest with?
1: Uh, It was my dear sister, you know, and it started with her, and I found it 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 was contagious in a good way. You know, once that I was open and transparent and just myself with one person, then I could more easily do that with other people to, to where now I feel most of the time I'm almost completely transparent and myself with both people. It was a positive uh, contagion.
0: <laughs> yeah, and so recovery can be confusing. The more vulnerable you get, the more powerful you become. And there's about a hundred other of those examples in sobriety, which is it's with their and they're fun to learn. But you mentioned that it's contagious. You became more confident in this journey and you started to open up with more and more people. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Yes, exactly. Yep.
0: Gotcha. And so what is a typical day in your recovery look like today, ASAF? Right
1: now, recovery elevator is one of my uh key it's one of the key components of my, of my sobriety. And the reason it works really much better than any other tool, not better, it's just it's, it's a tool that's working for me right now because I can post my current status where I'm at inside my head 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, I found that it's not anybody else's fault, but when I was about to relapse, I didn't want to pick up the phone because buddy's sleeping or, you know, this person is, I don't know what they're doing. The the heavy phone syndrome would kick in. And I just found that the ability to just post it, you know, onto like uh, a, a bunch of, a, a group of people who could all respond or none of whom, you know, uh, the, the ones who are busy aren't going to respond and that's okay, someone else will. So the Facebook group, and then I keep like, I I a close group of friends too, right? Like from recovery. And I uh, I know that if I'm heading to relapse, I'm going to pass a few stations first. And one of those stations is feeling isolated and not feeling like talking to anyone. So, I, I, I you know, I, I'll post on on the group and that often gets me open enough to pick up the phone and uh, call someone and, you know, stop at that station and, and, and you know, go back kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I liked how you, you kind of referenced the baby steps. Like you post, you can do it at your own leisure and your own comfort of your house. And I like how you said you post about what's going on in your head. <laughs> and then you get some feedback on that. And then it leads you to kind of that in-person network. It talks about how important it is to have actual human beings connected with you in your home city, which it sounds like you have, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. The The rehab that I went to is uh, is in my city. And while well, I moved here, to go to rehab originally I hadn't planned to live here but after spending so much time with these people and not really having roots deep enough to pull me back anywhere else I decided to to stay and I think that uh, you know it's, it's that's a very interesting question Paul like it's something that philosophically fascinates me is how as human beings we need contact with other human beings and I found that to be very true in my recovery but also for even just the sake of sanity you know, I I I'm like my default setting is alone at home in my room, and previously, with booze. But if I if I don't have enough human contact, then I think I start to lose a perspective of why I'm doing anything in in life, and you know who are the people that are affected by me. So I believe it's very important for not just recovery, but to lead uh, a. a just a happy and positive, uh, productive life. It's the more human contact, the better.
0: I agree one hundred percent with that. And, and Asaf, referring to the quote, "Drinking is but a symptom." Do you know the why in your drinking? Do you know why you drink?
1: Well, I don't know. I, I'm sure that it's, it it can be pinned down to one thing, but I, I more see it as it was my coping mechanism for for everything. You know, it started as uh, a tool that I would use to socialize or to uh, go to sleep at night. And and it was just a tool I picked up and it was harmless enough in the beginning. But since it was getting the job done, I, I just applied it and started using it uh, for everything. And yeah, I'm not sure, uh, Paul. I'm not sure if I can really, I feel that I should be able to answer that question. Maybe that's a goal to work towards, but um, I don't know if there's any one thing that I can pin it to.
0: Yeah, Asaf, I'm a firm believer of letting the past die, and I'm a firm believer of letting the past die hard. <laughs> At the same time, there is a why I think for a lot of us, and I wasn't able to really discover my why until about year three. It took a while, but uh, it'll just show up when you're ready to get there, if if that ever happens. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's it's super imperative that you dig and dig and dig, because um, you know you're then you can. The brain can kind of go in weird spots. But yeah, just a question that I sometimes throw out there that I find fascinating to ask. And uh, what have you learned about yourself in this recovery journey, Asaf?
1: Oh, boy, just so much. I think that, you know, my recovery is very closely tied as well to me really just entering into the world, period. You know, like my upbringing, having been in complete isolation, you know, my drinking was was my attempt at discovering the world that I was launched into you know but i quickly discovered that it was like it was a very it's a quite a small box actually you know the 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 booze box (laughs) it felt it felt enormous when i went into it but it quickly became like very claustrophobic and now as i'm leaving that behind but like i've never really been in the in the like i didn't grow up in normal society so it's also like an exploration of the world and it's realizing that There's a lot of people who don't drink. There's people who have successful and happy lives, you know, and that's what I want is is a life that is happy enough that I don't need to drink to either escape from it or enhance it or make it better in any way.
0: And what would you like to accomplish in life without alcohol?
1: I would love for my business that I'm running right now to, first of all, to support me fully and, um, you know, so that I can have that, I don't know, that freedom of being able to, I guess I still need to figure it out a little bit. But an initial goal is that I don't have to work at a regular job. You know, maybe that might be my one or two year goal.
0: Well, the good thing about sobriety is it gives us options. I didn't have many options when I was when I was drinking, but then when I sobered up, yeah, it's kind of the sky is the limit, which felt great. I got that feeling back that I had when I was a child of like, I can do whatever I put my mind to. And um, have you felt some of that with sobriety? Definitely.
1: Absolutely. I felt that uh, that sense of wonder or that sense of possibility, um, the excitement that I could really do anything. Like if I decided to uh, and I put five years or two years or 10 years because we never know how long we have to put into a thing. Mm-hmm. that if I did that, that I could do anything that I wanted to. And I, and I feel that uh, even today, you know, like we we still have time, you know exciting.
0: Yeah, we underestimate that feeling, but it's one of the most incredible sentiments in the entire world to to gain that back that I can do anything and that I put my mind to. And before we hit the rapid fire round, I want to ask you questions about cravings. Within the last six weeks and four days, have you had cravings? And what do you do when you experience them to overcome the cravings?
1: Well, you know, uh, it was was, uh, something you said that has actually become the cornerstone of My concept of cravings, and that is that they don't last more than twenty minutes
0: most of the time. Okay.
1: Whereas before that, so thank you for that because before I understood that, or before I just decided, hey, I'm going to believe that, a craving was uh, an overwhelming. It was it was something I could not get past because in my head that intense longing for the drink. If I didn't satisfy that, then it was gonna stay there, and I don't. And I, in my head, I was like, "Oh, I can't handle this for two hours or one day or one week." Whereas in point of fact, it doesn't last that long. It'll last you that ten or twenty. Some and most of the time, honestly, I found it lasts less than that. You know, if I pick up the phone and call someone, and not even like, "Hey, I'm really feeling like a drink right now," just by the time I get to the end of the conversation, just a general conversation, a lot of the times. That craving has passed.
0: Hmm. I love it. And, Asaf, we have reached the rapid-fire round. If you can answer these questions in 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Ready. All right. What was your worst memory from drinking?
1: You know, there's many, but the one that stands out was I woke up in the middle of the night uh, on a drinking night. This was maybe uh, three years ago before I ever decided to stop drinking. Middle of the night and completely... Drunk but not drunk enough to be passed out and there was a bottle of vodka next to my bed and I knew That I was under the complete control of that substance I wouldn't be able to go back to sleep without it and I wouldn't be able to Function the next day without it and that sense of complete powerlessness was very demoralizing
0: And when was a aha moment indicating that the gig was up?
1: well, I think it was I'd have to say it was in hindsight, you know, like when I lost my uh, driving license, it wasn't at that time. But, you know, a few weeks later, when I looked back on that and I said that, wow, you know, like not only did I lose my license, but something worse could have happened. I could have killed someone. And I think it was around that time when I was like, you know, what? like this was actually serious. Like it was um, a gradual aha.
0: Yeah, I like how you described that because you know, the, the, the moments can happen in the past, but we can have an aha moment in the present based off past moments because once the data points, we get enough of them together, we can hit that realization far later. I love how you said that. Yeah. And next question, Asaph, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward?
1: You know, right now what's working for me is what I'm going to continue to do, uh, which is primarily the uh, Facebook group, the Cafe RE, so right now in my life, I have two or three people who look to me for advice or help. And then there's a, a, a bunch of people who were on a similar level. And then there's other people who are ahead of me, so to speak, where I would like to go. And, and I think I try to keep that kind of a mix uh, in my life. And, and books are, are huge for me, actually. Uh, recovery memoirs are like have been amazing. Some of the ones you recommended, I, I read a huge amount of books. So,
0: what yep. are what are some of your top recovery books?
1: You know, I think uh, A Million Little Pieces was one of the first I read. It was just stunning by James Frey. Mm-hmm. Uh, got Castle, uh, Jeanette Walls, uh, My Fair Junkie. Uh, most of these, actually, I I think that. The ones that I've read recently have been recommended on your podcast. And the moment I hear one recommended, I go out and I, I grab it. And I usually listen to it in like audiobook style in one or two days.
0: Yeah, And in regards to sobriety, asaf what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: You know, I think it's something that uh, I was talking about before. It's just such a powerful statement. It's that for me it is, right? It's just, it's, it's, it's that idea that you can put the shovel down whenever you want to in terms of hitting bottom, hitting rock bottom.
0: And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners?
1: You know, it's just yesterday that somebody asked me, he's like, oh, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic, bro. And he was, he was having a drink and, but he was feeling conflicted about it, not in recovery, but just, uh, you know, in the course of the work that I do. And I said, well, alcoholism is not a thing that you, like you're not either yes or no, that's for you to judge. But I think that, you know, one of my, I want to go back for a sec. One of my aha moments was actually when I went to Google and I said, am I an alcoholic? And I answered yes to all those questions. You know, that was also an aha moment. And, and I think that if if you are answering yes to a lot of the warning signs, then uh, yeah, it might be time to take a look at it.
0: And before we depart, ASAP, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line.
1: You might be an alcoholic if you know your, you're having a problem with drinking, but you wake up in the middle of the night and you drink anyway because you can't face the idea of not drinking yet.
0: Yep. I've been there before, but I'm so glad that we are both past that point in our lives. Asaph, thank you so much for joining us. I cannot wait to see my recovery elevator painting and RE uh, on a canvas. I'm excited to get that. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today.
1: Thanks, Paul. It was a privilege. Thank you.
0: Okay, I'm going to paint a hypothetical situation that, oh my gosh, if this could ever happen would be so incredible, and I would like to be this guy, so I'm going to put in my official petition to the universe, I want to be this guy. Imagine a venue that holds all 7.7 billion people on this planet. Let's just imagine like a large football or soccer stadium. We're filing everybody in there, we've never done this before, so we're just kind of winging it. We've got Zimbabwe sitting over there. We've got Mexico sitting over there. And as the stadium starts to fill up, we see a couple issues. Number one, Brazil brought way too many annoying red vavuzuelas, those horns that you hear during the World Cup. And then we start to see China arguing with Italy. Italy saying, we invented pasta, but China's like, nope, we did in 1271. We have proof, yada, yada, yada. So we get together and say, all right, everybody out of the stadium. Once we're all in the parking lot, they say, okay, Just go sit with anybody you'd like, no assigned seating. If you like reggae or Bob Marley, go sit next to a Jamaican. Just mix with everybody. We're all human beings on the same planet. So all 7.7 billion people shuffle back into the venue. We all are seated, and hey, this is working out for the first time ever. We all understand we're there to recognize somebody, somebody that we are so thankful for for doing what they do. Again, I would love to be this guy. I go out on stage and say, all right, everybody, help me. Welcome to the stage this person, thing, entity that has basically been the most awesome thing ever. They've put up with a lot of BS from mankind. Let's hear it for planet Earth. I don't know if planet Earth would send a proxy, how planet Earth would walk across the stage, how it would actually receive this award, but you get the point. The idea for this segment of the podcast came to me on day one of the Inca Trail on the recovery elevator retreat to Peru. It hit me. Man, this is one cool rock we are living on. And I'm so thankful to be a part of it. Okay, recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.